read the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. This word gives eternal life to those who hear it in faith. So I'm reading Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, crying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Amen. Please be seated. So, a, a number of months ago, a movie came out about Napoleon Bonaparte. I didn't actually see the movie, but uh, Bonaparte is, is a, a, a person of great historical interest for me. And you, you might know that in 1812, his arrogant ambition led him to take at least 400,000 troops, some say 600,000, across the Russian border. His march to Moscow had actually great success, but the Russians burned the capital. And, and Napoleon actually failed to subdue the Russians. And he waited there a little bit too long, started his march back to France. Unfortunately, the harsh, the harsh Russian winters uh, were brutal. His Grand Army returned to France with only 40,000 men. His failed invasion in the face of the indelible Russians was actually commemorated in 1882 through the 1812 overture by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Uh, I'm sure you no doubt have heard this, this overture, uh, his retelling of Napoleon's defeat really is one of the most rousing patriotic compositions ever done. Although Tchaikovsky himself wasn't all that happy with it. But anyway, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with that overture, you, you, you might know that it opens with a very famous Russian hymn, God Save the People. And as it's playing, it begins to kind of calm down. Then you begin to hear La Marseillaise, the, the French national anthem. Dun, 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 dun. And then that's continually weaved through the various movements of the overture. Eventually, La Marseillaise is drowned out by a score of cannon shots. Later on, it's heard against uh, various Russian folk songs. But... It, as the, the overture goes and, and it begins to musically show that the French are retreating in the freezing winter, then suddenly the percussion section takes over with a crescendo of firing guns. 
But then softly, softly, softly in the background, you hear chimes. Those chimes are representing the bells of the Moscow Cathedral, which in turn represent the voice of God. Now what Tchaikovsky was trying to represent in this great composure, or composition, in this tremendous anthem, was to say, though the French army was far more powerful, far outnumbered, in many facts, the, the Russian army, yet the Russians prayed to God, and God heard their cry and delivered them. That's an amazing part of the composition. Go home and listen to it. But uh, redemptive history tells a very similar story, doesn't it? We were invaded by a far more powerful force. And, and, and we cried to God for deliverance, and God delivered us in a very surprising way. Through the death of the lion, who is now a slain lamb. And as rousing as Tchaikovsky's overture is, Revelation 5 displays a greater anthem. With phrases that began in chapter 4, continuing into chapter 5, total of five movements of a grand overture. We hear these praises. And her eyes are lifted above the trials, above the difficulties, above the hardships and tribulations and the, the, the persecutions that are part of this world. And what do we see? We see our king. Our king is, is seated now on the throne next to the one who is holding the book. And, 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 and we see that he is the great victor over all his foes. And guess what? His victory is our victory. What Jesus did, he did for us. And, and this chapter, these songs of Revelation 4 and 5 are, is something like the 1812 overture of the Bible. It should rouse you in patriotic devotion to your King Jesus Christ. And so again, we look at verse 8, and we see how the lion, who is the lamb, is now worthy to open the book and accomplish God's plan of salvation by conquering his foes through his death. He conquered his foes through his death, but then he conquered death by his resurrection from the dead. And, and verse 8 again tells us now that he he, he, he's standing there, the lamb is standing, and he takes the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Uh, this is a rather significant statement because, you see, in Revelation, you'll read how things are given. There, things are given to angels, things are given to others, but here the lamb takes the scroll. And he takes the scroll because it is his right to take it. He's overcome. Back in, uh, in, in John chapter 17, John records Jesus' prayer. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He's about to be betrayed by Judas. And in the garden, Jesus prays. And John records Jesus' prayer for us. And in verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished 
the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was given a task by the Father. That task involved him being humbled in his incarnation. Uh, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, became man, conceived in a womb of a little girl in the backwaters of the Roman Empire in Judea. And he's born very man of very man. And in his human flesh, he was humbled even further as he was led to the slaughter for the redemption of his people. And Jesus, as he looks and he, and he sees that he's finishing the work that the Father gave him, now he asks, Father, return my, my eternal glory to me. Here, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, shows the Father answering his son's prayer. Jesus takes the scroll and receives glory. The ability... To take the scroll is his great reward for his obedient work. He is worthy of eternal glory because he accomplished all that the Father sent him to do. He died, he rose again. The taking of this book led now the 24 elders and the living creatures to sing his praise. And, and now John first pictures the elders, these 24 elders, and, and what does he see? Well, he sees them with harps in their hands. And then he also sees that they're holding golden bowls of incense, which he says are the prayers of the saints. Literally, the prayers of the holy ones. Now, we usually associate the term holy one with uh, those who have pure ethical qualities, right? They're sinless. They're, they're pure But we need to understand, of course, that those in heaven are without sin. But the term, in, in, as it's used in the Old Testament and the New, usually refers not just to the pure ethical quality of something, but rather uh, something that has been set apart from the world in order to have a relationship with God and to be used by him for his divine purposes. Again, in the Old Testament, those things that, uh, that were called holy were particularly connected with the worship of God. Okay? Aaron and the priest wore holy garments. All the furniture that was in the tabernacle and the temple were called holy because they were uh, dedicated exclusively to God's worship. In fact, in Exodus 29, verse 37, it says that the altar, the altar which is covered with blood, this altar that, that is gory and ugly in all its ways, this altar is most holy, God says, and whatever touches the altar is holy. The sacrifices in the altar are holy. The bread that was placed in the holy place holy, the candlestick, holy. All these things were holy because they were devoted to God and his worship. Now it's interesting, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21, there God declares that Israel was holy. Now why was Israel holy? 
we, if you know anything about the Israels, they weren't ethnically pure. <laughs> they, they were often very disobedient to God, but he still calls them holy because God formed them to declare his praise. They were his special people on earth as they were consecrated by God for his purposes of redemption. Now, as John relates how these holy ones of God lift up their prayers, this, of course, is in conjunction with verse 10, which says that he made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. So lifting up prayers is the work of priests. They're the holy ones. You who have been bought by Jesus' blood, you are a saint. Uh, we, we're not to go to the Roman Catholics or the Greek Orthodox and say, oh, St. Michael. <laughs> you have been called a saint. You are called a holy one by God for the purpose of declaring his praise. You want to know why, why you are here today? You want to know what your life is about? You want to know what your chief end is? Your chief end primarily is to glorify God. and your, your, your purpose in life is to praise God, to worship him. Now, in the context, it says that these bowls of incense are, 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 are prayers. And in the context, we see that these prayers are praises. Later on, we'll see, chapter 6 particularly, how these prayers are actually petitions for God to show justice. Asking God to defend his honor by judging the persecutors of his people. And again, these, these prayers, these petitions of the saints are described as incense. They rise up to God as, as sweet smells that, that blesses God. Here, here beloved, you, you think your little prayer doesn't matter. Your little prayer is a sweet smell to God. Amen. Prayers are, are, are this description here in, uh, in Revelation 5 shows the loveliness of prayer. It shows the great position that prayer has before God as, as the saints enter into the Lord's work. But we also see in the hands of these elders a harp. Now, the, the, the word that's actually used here is kathara. You get the, the, our, our word guitar from this word, kathara. This was a very complex handheld lyre that held at least seven strings. Sometimes it held 10, sometimes 14 strings. But it, had, uh, it was a lyre with uh, at least seven strings and a spring mechanism that, that either stretched the, sing, uh, the strings or, or loosened the strings to allow the player to change the pitch as they plucked or strummed the instrument. And so the kathara was... Uh, to play the cathartic required a great deal of skill and practice. And because of its sound and because of the skill that it took, it was often used to entertain high dignitaries and kings in their banquets. Well, these harps mentioned by John here describes how this praise, the praise of the saints, is to be a high and skillful quality, nothing but the best sound, nothing but the best quality for the king of kings. But here's something else about this. 
you know, we're, we're all, uh, we, we all associate things. When I say White House, you, you automatically associate a White House, not with the house down the street over here, but with the government, the seat of the uh, United States government, right? Well, the same with these, what, what, the same with the Greeks, the original hearers. Uh, you hear Greek, uh, or you hear harp and song together, it would have caused the original hearers to think of theatrical performances, the Greek theater, where, where the harp and the song often would work together. You see, in Greek plays, actors would deliver their lines while a chorus would periodically sing with harp music throughout the performance. But you see, their songs were not merely for entertainment. It's not like the Broadway, you know, musicals. <laughs> the songs were to help explain what was going on in the play. And, and with this usage, we see that these songs here in Revelation 5 are meant to draw us into the drama of redemptive history. To, to draw us into the drama of redemption, helping us to understand a little bit more what's going on. And, and, and what we're told here is that they sang a new song. Now, in the scriptures, the emphasis of a new song is not so much on the newness of the song itself. It was a response to the newness of what God has done, how God has worked to redeem his people. So, for example... Exodus chapter 15. You are very familiar with that chapter, no doubt. Uh, God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt by splitting the Red Sea so that all the Israelites walked on dry ground through the Red Sea. They got to the other side, they turned around, and what did they see? The Egyptian chariots now chasing them. They got to the center and God closed them up with the waters. They all drowned. God delivered his people and judged his enemies. And then we hear that Moses and the people of Israel sang a song to the Lord that celebrated that I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. And, 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 and so we see that there was this new song that was sung in response to God's act of redemption. Now you read through the Psalms, there's quite a few Psalms that call upon God's people to sing. We, saw, we sang one just a little while ago, Psalm 148 or 49, that call upon God's people to sing a new song. Some of those hymns even say, sing a new song and and, and, and play the lyre, musical instruments, to praise God for his righteous acts of creation and salvation. Now, my friends, listen. If, if Moses could sing a song of victory over Egypt, you, you, you can read in, in 1 Samuel how the women sang a song of David's victory over Goliath. If, if the Psalms called for new songs to be sung because God created because he set our feet on a rock, then a certainly victory of the Lamb should inspire us with new songs to praise him and his victory. After all, the Lamb's victory has inaugurated the kingdom of God. 
His work of redemption really is no less spectacular than the creation of the universe itself. Why? Because his victory inaugurated new creation. Now, if the old creation prompted wonderful songs of praise, how much more so should the new creation? The Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3, says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Psalm 98 calls for a new song. Here in Psalms are in Revelation 4 and 5. New songs are sung. As the Lamb has taken the scroll as his righteousness, as his salvation has accomplished redemption, people from the four corners of the earth. The longing, you see what we're seeing? The longing of God's people through the ages is now finally realized. Praise to this worthy lamb who has redeemed Now, the song that's sung there in verses 9 and 10, again, this is the third of the five songs, going back to Revelation chapter 4. Uh, this is the third of five songs. Again, the first two are found in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 11, there it, the song was, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And here in verse 9 of chapter 5, Worthy are you to take the book to break its scroll. So we hear in this worthy, worthy. Actually, the Greek word for receive and, and take from chapter 4, verse 11, and 5, verse 9, that's the same Greek word. It draws us into to enhance the parallelism that's being developed here. These paralleled praises from chapter 4 and chapter 5 help us then to understand that the Lamb is worthy of receiving praise, just as the Father. The Lamb is equal in divine glory with the Father. Although this lamb, this lion, this root of David is, is fully man, for here he's also fully God. And, and the words of the, these songs show that he is worthy of receiving the same praise that's given to the Father. And but what is of great interest is how these parallels then also show us and give us some understanding of what redemption is. Look again at chapter 4, verse 11. There it says that God is worthy to receive praise. Why? There it says because he created all things. Chapter 5, verses uh, 9 and 10, the lamb is worthy to receive praise. Why? Because he has redeemed fallen mankind. But in this parallel, combining these two verses together, we see that the redemption that the, that the lamb accomplishes is more than just the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is wonderful. The forgiveness of sins is, is delightful for us, isn't it? 
Every sin that you've committed has now been washed clean by his blood. But salvation, redemption is far greater than just that. Amen. We're seeing that, that salvation, this redemption, is participation in new creation. And in this new creation, we will be glorified together with him forever and ever. Even now, we're told that we are of new creation. Seen by the fact that we raise our praise to God as a kingdom of priests. And we're told that this new creation has come because he was slain. Again, let me point out that the Greek word that was used uh, in the psalm uh, of him being slain means that he was slaughtered. Even as a Passover lamb was killed as a sacrifice whose blood pacified God's wrath. Friends, listen. Jesus didn't die as a martyr. Some people think of him as, well, he was just an innocent victim who was martyred. He was a prophet who died because he was misunderstood. His, his message of peace and love was rejected. No, that's not Jesus himself said about his death, he says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Jesus had a purpose in dying. He died so that he could rise again. That's what he says. I, I lay down my life so that I could take it up again. No one has taken it from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. The Son of God, who shared the Father's eternal glory, became a man for the very purpose of dying a sacrifice for sin to be raised, or to be raised from the dead. Again, my friends, listen, you, you look at him, you know, his back was ripped open by scourging. That's a horrible. Most people died just by being scourged. They, they plaited a crown of thorns. These thorns are huge thorns. and They, they stuck it on his head. His, blow, his blood flowed freely. He suffered tremendous pain on the cross as his hands and as his feet were pierced through by nails. But the, the thing is, other men have suffered similarly through crucifixion. Jesus was not the only person in history to be crucified. Literally hundreds of thousands of people were crucified. It's not that he died that made him worthy. What made him worthy is that no one in all of history suffered as he suffered in this death. Again, other men suffered crucifixion. Other men suffered scourging. Other men were mistreated and tortured. But he was the only one who died for your sin. Deep in your heart, you know what you deserve. You know what you deserve for that little white lie. You know what you deserve when you took a double look at that woman bouncing down the street. You know what you deserve. I know what I deserve. Our transgressions, our sins are black. They are evil. They are hurtful. They are spiteful. We say things that we can't take back. We feel the shame of our guilt, don't we? All of us feel shame. There's not one person who walked in these doors this morning who doesn't feel some kind of shame because of something in their lives. And the thing is, we would even lie to cover up our sin and try to hide our shame from anyone else. But the thing is, this was a spotless lamb. He was sinless. He was unblemished. 
He was pure. He didn't deserve death. But he transferred our guilt upon himself. And he clothed himself with our shame. The wages of sin is death. Everyone dies because they have earned death. But he was sinless. He didn't earn death. He didn't deserve death. But he bore your sins. He who was sinless became sin, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6. He became sin. He bore your sins. He fully transferred your sin to himself. And he hung on the very cross that you deserve to die on. But there... This is the thing that no painting can cover. You can paint a picture of someone on a cross, but here's the thing. The pain that Jesus suffered was that the full wrath of God was poured out upon him. Divine justice took out its complete, utter vengeance on him. His death redeems sinful mankind by satisfying divine justice. That's what makes him worthy. It's not that he died, but why he died that makes him worthy. You see this. Praise the Lord. Verse 9 says that you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The verb here that's translated as purchased or redeemed or ransomed has the idea of ransoming a prison out of slavery or out of bondage. Jesus' death accomplished nothing less than delivering us from bondage. Delivering us from the condemnation of sin. Releasing us from the fear of death. Freeing us from the power of the grave. His spilled blood gives eternal life. His blood is efficacious. It's powerful to save to the uttermost. That's what Jesus meant in John chapter 10 when he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Beloved, this is a very important doctrine. The song does not extol a possible or a potential or a provisional salvation. You know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, Jesus died for everybody. If, if Jesus died for every person, every person would be saved because his blood is that powerful. It's that efficacious. It washes every sin. But, but people don't believe in Jesus. And there are many people who have died and have gone to hell. This is not a possible salvation. This is a true, actual, accomplished salvation for every person that the Father gave the Son. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I die for my sheep. Doesn't that for every person? He dies for his sheep. Not one drop of Jesus' blood was wasted. Not one of it was spilled in vain. John chapter 17, verse 9, as Jesus again was considering his work of redemption, he prayed, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, they are yours. He doesn't pray for everyone. He prays, for those that the Father gave him. He died for those that the Father gave him. And we're told that the people that he died for, his sheep, were not just of the people of Israel. But it was from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
And we're told that all those for whom Jesus died are in fact redeemed. Jesus proclaimed, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. Beloved, Jesus' blood is so precious, it is so powerful, that no one person who is washed by that blood will ever be lost. Not one. Doesn't that give you comfort? Drop into the deepest sin. Fall into the deepest and darkest depravity. Still, his blood is more than able to purchase you and deliver you. Noah the drunkard. Moses the murderer. David the adulterer. Peter the denier. Paul the blasphemer. All washed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus declared, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So prostitutes tax collectors, drunkards, blasphemers flocked to him and received eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that Jesus' blood has washed clean fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. And if that's not enough, 1 Corinthians, well, I, I, don't, I never did any of those things. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 20. God has chosen the foolish things. I'm so glad that God chose foolish things. He's chosen foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Do you find yourself in one of those categories? I do. Several of them. There is not one human soul that stands now or will stand in heaven that was not a condemned sinner. Did you know that? Not one human soul. If you are a citizen of heaven, if you have found that your home is there in heaven, it is only because you have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, our voices with the 24 elders should praise the Lamb. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. Jesus has conquered to take up his role as King of Kings. And his reign, we're told here, extends over the whole earth. When is Jesus reigning? He's reigning right now. When is Jesus King? Not sometime future. He's reigning right now. And he's reigning over the whole earth, no matter what tribe, no matter what language, no matter what people group, no matter what nation, Jesus is reigning. And he's taken men from all these things and redeeming them. He's taken them out of the world and he's making them to be a kingdom. Of course, the, the church is made up of all kinds of people from various kinds of countries. We, even in this church here, we have Scots, we have English, we have Armenians, we have Chinese, we have Germans, Swedes, Norwegians. We have all kinds of Mexicans. We have people from all kinds of places. We have male, we have female. We have some who are poor, some who are rich. We have some who are uneducated, some who are educated. His death and his resurrection 
Jesus has done something amazing. He's abolished all those enmities. These enmities exist in a fallen world. You have a United Nations that is trying to accomplish peace. They have been for, for decades and decades, over half a century, and they still continue to fail. Why? Because men are sinners. But Jesus has abolished the enmity. He's taken away sin so that now he makes us into one new man. What, what the world cannot do, he has done. <laughs> Praise the Lord. That's who we are worshiping. And he has freed us from the world's condemnation so that we may offer up true worship to him. This inaugurated new creation is a redeemed humanity from the four corners of the world, all washed by the blood of this victorious lamb who now lives to glorify God and enjoy his father forever. Oh, my friends, we are saved in order that we might worship God. Whatever else you do, whatever else you're called to be in life, this is your greatest call. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, Israel was redeemed from Egyptian slavery. And then God declares Israel's purpose. You shall be to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. Then in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, as Daniel sees this vision, he sees the Son of Man overcame the various enemies of the saints. He goes up to the Ancient of Days. And it says that the saints took position, uh, possession of the kingdom. And see, this is what the song is here celebrating, the fulfillment of that calling and that vision. The victory of the lamb has conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered death. He's conquered your heart. He has delivered us from our enemies. He's redeemed us from the slavery of sin and of death. He's freed us from Satan's tyranny and power. What else matters? The new song of verse 10 concludes, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, there are variant readings of this in ancient manuscripts. And, and I think the more trustworthy manuscripts points to something else. This, this here points to a future. They will reign, but the variant readings have a present sense, and they reign over the earth. Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And, and this vision shows that Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated a glorious kingdom. And as the gospel goes out into all the world, people are being redeemed so they might join in worshiping the victorious king. And indeed, Jesus reigns. He rules over the world. And we are brought into his kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. And in this spiritual kingdom, we are reigning already. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of life? Again, what this song is celebrating is that the kingdom of the new creation has already broken in to the present fallen world through the death the resurrection of Christ, so that the redeemed in Christ, the holy ones in Christ, are now of this new creation. And we who trust in him, we who are united to him by faith, we share in his victory over this life. Oh, but pastor, I don't see any victory in my life. I feel so defeated. 
I am so beaten up with tribulations and relational disappointments and by persecutions. I am just eking out an existence. You feel like that? Do you feel that you came here this morning beaten up? I often do, I'll tell you something. <laughs> I, I come often on Sunday mornings feeling oh, so weak and so disappointed and so defeated. But Paul, who certainly knew of tribulations and disappointments, Paul, who knew of all kinds of struggles, both bodily and spiritual, Paul, who was certainly persecuted, he said, for your sake, Fury and put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the reality of the Christian life. Being put to death all day long. Being considered as sheep for the slaughter. But Paul didn't end there. If Paul ended there, that'd be one thing. But the gospel filled him with such hope. Listen to what he then says in the very next verse. Yes, considered to be shot, uh, sheep as to be slaughtered. But, look at all the butts in the Bible, my friend. You look at the butts in the Bible and you will be overwhelmed with, with hope. And that's the B-U-T butts, by the way. <laughs> but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced. I am persuaded. I am absolutely assured that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you convinced of that? Yes, you go through your trials, you go through your hardships. Yes, you might be beaten up. But you know what? Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for you. And because he loves you with an everlasting love, he loves you with an omnipotent love. He's worthy. And he's able to save to the uttermost. He guarantees victory. Amen. So, beloved, look up. Rejoice. There's no power set against you that can pull you away from your calling to be his saint, his holy one, his priest. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we finish this these verses, only to look ahead of what comes. And, and our hearts are overwhelmed with your glory. Our hearts are overwhelmed, O oh Lord, as we see your power to save. And who do you save? The righteous, the good, those that do well, the, the successful? No, he saves losers. He saves those who are sinners, those who are without hope. Those who are sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are sitting in the, the country of the, the shadow of death 
have seen a great light. And so, Lord, that's our hope. Not in our strength, not in our abilities, not in what we have accomplished. And even though, Lord, we see our many failures and we are ashamed of our sins and ashamed of those things that we'd rather no one know, including you, yet, oh Lord, none of these things will ever take us from your hand. And for this, Lord, we have to give you praise. And we have to praise the Lamb who redeemed us and has made us to be a kingdom, a people of victors, people who are priests, who worship you in spirit and truth. So, Lord, build us up in this faith. Build us up in this doctrine. Build us up, O Lord, by the things that are here recorded for our, for our sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, let's stand.